Heavenly Father, we're so grateful to you once again for allowing us the opportunity to come to your holy word. Even as we heard from our brother Mike Neer, what a tremendous, tremendous power your word has to change us from the inside out. And I pray that we might realize and recognize that as we approach your word even now, that our hearts would be ripe and tender to receive your word and that we might walk away reflecting and praying and evaluating and assessing our own lives, that, Lord, we may be more and more conformed into the image of your Son. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Colossians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14 is our text for this morning. The, we have been in the middle of a series, as you remember, called Christ-Centered Living. And the title of this particular message is A Relentless Pursuit. A Relentless Pursuit. The Christian life centered on Christ leads to holiness, to Christ-likeness. And we've been seeing in Colossians chapter 3 that, that a holy lifestyle begins with the right perspective or mindset. That in contrast to adopting the, the thinking patterns of the world and the tendencies of the world around us, Christians are to focus on Christ, on living for Christ, on the priorities of Christ, on His kingdom principles. Now, far from some abstract or, or nebulous thing, this Christ-focused perspective then fleshes itself out in the way that we deal with our sin. We've seen that on the negative side in verses 5 through 11 of chapter 3. In the power of the Spirit, we are called to actively and aggressively be slain our sin, stripping ourselves off of the old filthy thoughts and activities which characterized us before Christ. God has broken the dominating power and influence of sin. And as Christians, we have a new master. Our lives are, are to match our position as new creatures in Christ Jesus. But also on the positive side, as we're going to see now in the next couple of Sundays in verses 12 to 17, in the power of the Spirit, we are to be relentlessly pursuing Christ and Christ-likeness. In fact, Paul has already pointed out in verse 10 that our goal for the glory of God should be to be conformed to the image of Christ. No matter what your social, cultural, or general background or whatever baggage you brought in before coming to, coming to faith in Christ, in Christ now you are called to be holy. To be holy. Now the interesting thing about the pursuit of holiness in the Christian life is that we oftentimes view this so individualistically and, and personal. And it is that, first and foremost, it is personal. Uh, each person is accountable to God for breaking God's law. Each person must be personally made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ. However, once we have personally been made right with God, the pursuit of Christ's likeness and holiness is far from an individual pursuit. You are now part of the body of Christ. You are now part of the family of God. All of those who are redeemed by faith in Jesus Christ. And so the pursuit of holiness can be said to be both personal and corporate, as we're going to see in this text. In other words, when you are living in sin, not only do you bring personal harm to yourself, but you also bring harm to the rest of the church. Conversely, when you are pursuing Christ-like character... Not only is that healthy for you personally, 
but also you contribute to the unity and the harmony of the church. So the pursuit of holiness is both personal and corporate, if you will. And we're going to see that in this lovely passage here in the next couple of Sundays. We must be pursuing holiness, beloved, for our personal good and for the good of His church. And so in this relentless pursuit of holiness, I want, to, I want to call our attention in verses 12 and 13 to three beautiful realities that we must keep in mind that lead to Christ-likeness personally and to unity corporately as a church. These are three beautiful realities that we must keep in mind if we are going to, to see long-lasting, genuine holiness from the heart. And if we're going to see unity and harmony in our church The first beautiful reality that we must be mindful of is the fertile soil for holiness. The fertile soil for holiness at the beginning of verse 12. Genuine holiness is firmly rooted upon the foundation of who we are in Christ. Paul has made that point over and over again. And here at the beginning of verse 12, he mentions three beautiful truths that have to do with our identity in Christ... And that really become the the fertile soil upon which holiness can be cultivated in the Christian life. Notice what he says at the beginning of verse 12. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. Notice, first of all, that we must be mindful of of the foundation of our choosing. We have been chosen of God. And we know, specifically back from verses 12 through 14 of chapter 1, that specifically he's talking about God the Father. That God the Father has chosen or elected us in Christ. I remember early on in my Christian walk, another fellow brother in the college ministry that I was a part of, who was wrestling uh, through with passages from the book of Ephesians and other passages as well. And I remember him coming to me and saying, Kempis, I really struggle with the doctrine of God's sovereign election. I really struggle with that. What do you think about it? To which I answered, and I didn't know a more profound answer at that time. I said, I believe it. I believe it. Why do I believe in the doctrine of God's sovereign election? Simple answer. Because it's in the Bible. Because it's biblical. There's a plethora of biblical support for the fact that God elects those who believe. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, he's referring to believers, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. John chapter 15, verse 16, Jesus said, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear much fruit. Titus chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1-2, through 2, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. Mark it. Salvation is first and foremost and completely by God's sovereign choosing. Now, this choosing 
has nothing to do with our performance or worthiness, but is all by grace. God's unmerited, undeserved favor is shown towards wicked sinners. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. And then he says, For we, believers, are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Beloved, God did not look ahead and identify some good or worthy people who are deserving of His choosing. And He said to Himself, those humans up there I could see ahead are more virtuous than these others, so I'm going to choose them because they are lovely people who work out, who, who, who are much better than those others. No, it is all by His grace. Nothing about our performance, nothing about our worthiness. This choosing is an act of God's sovereign divine prerogative, not our own. God did not look ahead and choose those who would choose Him back, in other words, or those who would accept His call. It was an act of His sovereign choice. And when God chooses to call a sinner to repentance, that sinner will respond to God's call to awaken from the dead. That sinner will wake up spiritually speaking. Romans chapter 3 tells us that apart from God's call, a sinner does not seek God. Romans 3, 10 and following says that no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none righteous, not even one. No one seeks for God. God goes after sinners, including you and I who have been saved. This choosing is for the comfort and the praise of believers. I want you to take note of that. In most contexts, not all, where the doctrine of election or God's sovereign choice appears, it is designed for believers so that they, believers, would find encouragement that they are secure in God's love and they're driven then to worship and praise and obedience and holiness. Such as in Ephesians chapter 1. Paul bursts forth into praise in Ephesians chapter 1. In fact, chapter 1 of Ephesians verses 3 through 14 are one sentence in the Greek where Paul is just praising God and blessing God. And he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then he says, Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him. Paul is worshiping God, and he first praises God for having chosen believers, including himself. Now listen, we need to be careful, because an understanding of God's sovereign election does not acquit sinners from utter a hundred complete responsibility to respond to the call of the gospel with obedient faith. From a human standpoint, the call of the gospel for a sinner to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ should be obeyed. Should be obeyed. Furthermore, I would say to us, as we share the message of the gospel, as we call sinners to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we should do it unto everyone without partiality. Without partiality. The great prince of preachers, C.H. Spurgeon, 
wrote, said something along these lines. That the call to repent and believe in the gospel should be made to all. For no one walks around with an E for elect on their back. Nobody does. So we have the responsibility as believers to be faithful to sharing the gospel with everyone and leave the results to who? To God. Leave the results to Him. Now listen, Paul's, Paul's purpose for talking about the fact that they're chosen is not for the purpose of raising controversy, but to remind them of their beautiful position that then propels them to pursue holiness. He also says, look in verse 12, that they are holy. That they are holy. Set apart once. We who are believers have been positionally set apart from slavery to sin and self-idolatry to now in practice live righteously and in obedience to the Word of God pursuing Christ-likeness. I remember back in my college years, one of my buddies just having such a hard time because his friends, after he, became, he came to know Christ, um, his friends who were unbelievers, obviously they used to be okay with him, with inviting him to different sinful activities and partying on the weekend and all of that. But uh, after coming to know Christ, they would say, ah, hey, we're not going to invite him anymore because he is holy now. He's holy now. And my friend would obviously be very discouraged because he would be called that. And yet... If I would have known better, I would have told him, hey, take comfort in that, man. If that means that, if by that they mean that you're not going to go and participate in their sinful activities anymore, then they're right. You've been set apart now to live righteously for the Lord Jesus Christ. You are holy. You're set apart from slavery to sin to now pursue Christ. Also, look at verse 12. We are beloved. We are beloved. Brothers and sisters, can I remind you that in Christ... You are loved. You and I who were unlovely and wicked are now loved in Jesus Christ. You know, I often scratch my head about my wife, Andrea. How is it that she could possibly love me? I mean, she knows so much garbage about me. And yet she still loves me unconditionally. And she loves me to the point where she'll confront me on my sin so that I would be a a holy man of God. But how is it possible that she could possibly love me? Can I remind us all the more, all the more that God in Christ Jesus, who knows you perfectly, perfectly, more than your spouse knows you, more than your brothers or sisters in Christ know you. God loves you in Christ Jesus. Amen. We're beloved. We're beloved. All of these three precious, beautiful truths about the believer, beloved, become the, the fertile soil for holy living. And I can't find a greater motivation for you and I to pursue holiness than to know that we have been chosen, that we've been set apart in Christ Jesus to pursue Christ, and that we are beloved. We are beloved. Holiness is founded, first and foremost, upon God's work in our lives, that we are loved by Him. But being mindful of this should motivate us, secondly, to the hard work of holiness. The hard work of holiness. Notice the middle of verse 12. Paul says, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on. Put on. That is a a command. Paul has already used the imagery of of stripping off dirty clothing in verse 8, by which he meant putting aside sin from our lives. Now he says on the positive side in verse 12, put on, dress yourself with clean clothing. By which he means holy attire, Christ-like conduct, which matches your new identity in Jesus Christ. 
This command points to the need for, for work in holiness. That as those who have been chosen and set apart and beloved in Christ Jesus, we cannot be passive, beloved, or lackadaisical about our pursuit of Christ or our approach to holiness. Not at all. But we are propelled now by God's acceptance of us, by faith in Christ, to be holy people, to pursue Christ-likeness. We must be putting on the righteous attire that is in conformity to Christ and who He is. You know, I remember my first job as a teenager at the age of 15. Um, I went in, I, I filled out an application, I was interviewed at this place, and then I went home and I received a call two or three days later saying, hey, you've been hired, come on in, we need to do a two to three hour orientation with you. And I went in and obviously got that orientation and they started telling me more about the company and procedures and all of that. You know, something interesting about my job? I was not allowed to wear what I wanted. I was a snot-nosed 15-year-old thinking, hey, you know what? I'm going to come in and I'm going to dress however I want. And the guy said, "Uh uh-uh, young guy, you need to wear the attire that is in conformity to this job that you have now. You are now an employee of Champ Sports, so what do you need to do? You need to wear the jersey that's, that's striped black and white, black slacks, black shoes. You need to come in clean shaven. You cannot come in gruffy looking like you look right now, right? I needed to, to, to put on the attire that now matched my position there in this new job. And so it is, beloved, in the Christian life. We're putting on godly attire, Christ-like attire that matches our identity. We are now adopted as sons of God, children of God, and we must, we must flesh that out in our holy living, in Christ-like pursuit. But this holy life takes hard work, doesn't it? Hard work. And it is hard work that God requires of us. And I want you to see this. Turn a couple of pages back to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. To see this together. And verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but much more in my absence. He's, he's affirming them. They are believers. He says that they are even obedient, even though he's not with them presently. But then he says in verse 12, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why can he command that? Because, precisely because of the fact that now as believers, they've been empowered by the Spirit of God to walk in obedience. Now, he doesn't mean work out your salvation with fear and trembling in the, in the sense salvifically speaking. Not positionally, but in practice. Flesh out who you are, in fact, in Jesus Christ. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And notice, verse 13, For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. As we pursue holiness and godliness, beloved, we're able to do it precisely because God has empowered us to do so. God is the one who is working in us both to will and to work for His good pleasure so we can do it. He couldn't write that to unbelievers because they are dominated by the influence of sin. But believers have been rescued from sin's dominating power. We are able to obey. We are able to work out in practice our salvation with fear and trembling. So holiness is, is hard work. Go with me just a couple of pages back again to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6, 
verses 10 through 20 is such a, a powerful passage. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20 on, on the spiritual warfare of the believer. And Paul makes the point over and over again that in spiritual warfare, the, the believer can stand firm. And the question is, why can he, why can she, believer, stand firm? Is because God has given us all of the resources that we need. It's called the spiritual armor of God. But many believers don't appropriate it. So he commands us, look at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. And here's the exhortation. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. How can we stand firm against this devastating opponent, Satan? Put on God's spiritual resources. You do it. You do it, believer. Look at verse 13. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and so forth and so forth. You're able to resist. You're able to stand firm. You're able, believer, to be victorious in the Christian life. But you must put work into it in the power of the Spirit of God. Verse 17. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And then in verses 18 through 20, he talks about prayer at all times for everyone, for the gospel, in the power of the Spirit of God. You believer, appropriate God's resources. God, beloved, has given us everything that pertains to life and godliness, but you and I can't have this let go and let God kind of an attitude. It demands holiness requires hard work from us. See, Christians know that God who loves us wants us to be like Jesus, His Son, right? And our desire as believers will be to put in the Spirit-empowered work required to become like Jesus. For holiness is work. Listen to me. An understanding of God's love for us does not lead to licentiousness or libertarianism in the Christian life. An understanding of God's love for you or of grace is not license for you to sin and to live an unrepentant sin believer. Not at all. Or to the idea that I can live in sin because after all, God loves me. And that's all I need to know. Some people have that attitude. You know that? Hey, don't talk to me about working for holiness. What's wrong with you? Or about obedience in my Christian life. God loves me and that's all I know. Well, listen to me. You may be talking about a God, but not the God of the Bible. You may be talking about a Jesus... You may be following some Jesus, but if you don't believe that you need to walk in Christ-like character, then you're not following, following the Jesus of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible and the Jesus of the Bible calls you to be holy. The true believer loves to walk in the light and wants to become like his or her Savior. No matter how much you and I struggle, we will discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness and the power of the Spirit by the guidance of God's Holy Word if we are in Christ. Amen? Some people love to talk about the love of God, but they don't want to hear about God's holiness. And the fact that God says to you and I, believer, be holy, for I am holy. Hey, Pastor Kempis, that's not nice. That's not very loving. You keep preaching like that, I'm not coming back. 
I'm not coming back. Listen, I'm just telling you what the Word of God says. I'm just telling you this. That the same God who is a God of love is also a holy God. Because He is holy and because He is loving, you need to recognize that He sent His Son Jesus not only to rescue sinners from His just judgment, but also to deliver you and I from the power of sin over our lives. That we would no longer be slaves to sin, but that now we would be slaves of Christ and slaves of righteousness, beloved. That's what I'm telling you. That we would become like Jesus. God poured His wrath upon His own Son for your sin, so that if you repent and believe in Christ, you can be forgiven of your sins and rescued from God's coming wrath. You can. And when God saves you by faith, He gives you all you need to crucify your sin and to be holy and Christ-like. Christians have everything, beloved. That pertains to life and godliness. Endless resources. The Spirit of God. The Word of God. The Church of God. The people of God. All help the believer to become like Jesus in this process called sanctification. Oh, the glory of the Gospel. Amen? The glory of the Gospel. But becoming like Jesus requires work. You don't just let go and let God. It requires work and and is founded upon God's love for us. And notice thirdly, that as we work, we will show thirdly the gracious fruit of holiness. The gracious fruit of holiness. In contrast to those harmful, sinful, destructive sins of verses 5 and 8 that we need to be putting away, Paul says to put on the following Christian graces. And I want to highlight something before we look at these graces in verses 12 and 13. Because we learn as we look at these that the Christian life, as I've mentioned in our introduction, is both personal and corporate, beloved. It is first and foremost a personal, passionate pursuit to know and to love Christ. But listen to me, that devotion from the heart to pursue Jesus Christ should be evidenced in our relationships with one another. In our social interaction with one another. Oftentimes, Christians boast of a a great vertical relationship with God. And yet, when you look at their horizontal relationships with others, it is quite a mess. Either they are in conflict with many people, and in irreconciled relationships with multiple people, or they just avoid people altogether. They avoid friendship and relationship with people altogether, because they don't want to get into problems with other people. So they just stick themselves in their closet, and that's it. What we see in verses 12 and 13 is that Paul goes from what I call the root to the fruit of these Christian graces. What I mean by that is that we see the the root or the heart attitude that Christians should cultivate that then leads to the expressed fruit or activity that is shown toward other people, toward others in our interpersonal relationships in the body of Christ. We cultivate those hard attitudes and they should manifest themselves in the way that we treat one another, beloved. Notice, first of all, the first couplet, if you will, we're instructed to put on a heart of compassion, a heart of compassion, which is going to lead to kindness. Interesting word here for heart in heart of compassion. It's not your normal Greek word for heart, which would be the word cardia. 
It is a word, this word heart, that literally refers to one's bowels or inward parts. To the intestines, if you will. It was used to, of the seat of one's deepest emotions. It was a graphic word used to describe deep and, and genuine, heartfelt affection toward other people. In fact, Paul translates it as affection. Or, say, or tells the Philippians in chapter 1, verse 8 of Philippians, I, I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. He's expressing his love to them. And he says, I long for you, Philippians, with the affection of Christ Jesus. Same word, affection. It is translated compassion in Matthew 9.36, where it says that seeing the people, Jesus felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep having no shepherd. Our Lord Jesus felt a, a deep and genuine tender pity for the, for the multitudes because he recognized their spiritual bankruptcy, their spiritual need. This heart of compassion is not fabricated. It's not impulsive. It's not fake. It is deep and heartfelt. It is genuine and it's sincere. And notice in verse 12, if you're cultivating a heart of compassion, then it will lead to action, which he says is kindness. Kindness. Kindness is, is a helpful and, and friendly spirit, a sweet and tender disposition that manifests itself in our willingness to meet the needs of others in tangible ways. When we practice kindness, then we're willing to meet the needs of others. And these needs can be social in nature. For example, the need for friendship or relationship. That when you and I, as, as members of the body of Christ, see others who, who need friendship, who need to be reached out to, that we, out of a heart of compassion, would be kind to others and show kindness to them in that way. These needs could also be of a spiritual nature. When we see a struggling believer with sin or in the midst of their trials or some physical ailment or, or whatever, that we would have the, a heart of compassion that would then manifest itself in kindness and coming alongside of other believers with their, their struggles against sin and trials and loving on them and pointing them to the Word and being willing to, to sacrifice for them. Those needs can also be of a material nature. Sacrificing our own resources Saying no to ourselves in a particular area so that we can help somebody in very tangible ways. That's how we show kindness to one another, beloved. It's this, this mindset of uh, others' mindedness that fleshes itself under kind deeds. You remember Tabitha in Acts chapter 9? We don't have time to go there. Tabitha in Acts chapter 9, verses 36 and following. There's this woman in a place called Joppa, and this little old lady dies. She dies. And everybody is weeping. There's much grieving in this place in Joppa because of this woman, this believer called Tabitha, named Tabitha. And so much so that the saints in Joppa are, are missing her. And they hear about Peter the apostle and they get him there to Joppa. And when he gets there and this lady is laying there, uh, obviously dead now, all of these widows are there saying, Oh, Peter, look at all the tunics and everything that God, that, that, that this lady did for us. And it says there in Acts chapter 9 that this was a woman who continually did deeds of kindness for other people. 
In fact, the widows are the ones that are telling Peter, look at this, look at the tunics and look at the garments that she's made for us. The widows who were the, the least of those uh, in, uh, members of society. So this woman was not concerned about accolades or public renown. She was a, a person who did kind deeds out of a heart of compassion for the widows, the least amongst um, members of that community. That was Tabitha. Beloved, how much more us? How much more should we be imitating that type of a character? That out of a heart of compassion, we should be led to kind deeds towards others. We need, beloved, more Tabithas amongst us. Or Tabithos. That doesn't work, does it? Okay, Barnabases. Encouragers. Men who do kindness. Tabithas. Women who, are, who have a heart of compassion and are always looking to do kind deeds for others, meeting people's needs. We need those people amongst us, beloved. So a heart of compassion that manifests itself in kindness. Look at verse 12. Humility that manifests itself in gentleness. Humility refers to lowliness of mind. Having a low view of oneself. Listen, in comparison to the majesty of God. We struggle with the opposite of humility, with pride, when we compare ourselves to other people. And when we compare ourselves to other people, we are either led to think that we are better than other people, and thus we're preoccupied with our own needs, or on the other hand, we're led to feel sorry for ourselves because we don't measure up to others. In other words, the opposite of humility, pride, either leads on the one hand to self-exaltation, the subtle attitude of superiority over others that leads to self-preoccupation with your own needs and not the needs of others, or to a false sense of humility. The believer says, oh, I'm not worthy. Who am I to help anybody in the church? God has given me the short end of the stick. Both extremes, beloved, are pride, aren't they? Both are pride because it's not about you and I. It's not about you and I. It's what God can do through us, right? In the power of the Spirit to obey Him in particular areas of life or to serve Him in particular areas. How is humility cultivated then? The more you behold the majesty of Christ on the pages of His Word and the gospel truth and you're gripped by who He is in His infinite glory, you and I realize that we don't measure up to Him and we shouldn't even try. We shouldn't even try. Let the majesty of Christ, believer, on the one hand, deflate your self-exalting pride as you behold Jesus Christ. And on the other hand, let, it, let just beholding His, His infinite majesty re- help us realize our inadequacy. That we are utterly inadequate, beloved, for any good work were it not for the grace of God. We need Jesus Christ for everything doing that. In Christ, we are sufficient for every good work that He's called us to do. That, beloved, is humility. It's the mindset of, of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, who says, Nevertheless, in light of his weaknesses, he says, Nevertheless, I would rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ would be perfected in me. He says, When I am weak in myself, he means, then I am strong in Christ. Christ was his sufficiency. See, apart from Christ, we're not able to do anything, beloved. Apart from Him, we can do nothing, nothing whatsoever. And humility says, you know what? I'm not able to do anything in and of myself, but in Christ who strengthens me, I can do all things that He's called me to do, right? 
Now, a humble, proper view of oneself in comparison to the glory of Christ then leads us to gentleness in our dealings with one another. Gentleness. Gentleness is the opposite of a, of a harsh, abrasive, or manipulative approach toward others in word or deed. Gentleness in our dealings with one another shows, listen, that we are humbling ourselves before Almighty God. Why? Because if we understand that we don't have to control people in our harshness, we don't need to be harsh, we don't need to manipulate our spouses, we don't need to manipulate our kids, we don't need to manipulate one another through harsh tones. Why? Because God is in control of everything. And He's using us with a gentle approach in the lives of people. A gentle approach shows, beloved, that we are humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God, does it not? That we trust Him. That we trust Him. He who is all-knowing and is working in the lives of people. And we simply want to be an instrument in the Redeemer's hands. Approaching people gently. Both humility and gentleness are divine qualities true of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to Matthew eleven twenty eight. This is Jesus speaking concerning Himself. Come to Me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For My yoke is easy, and My burden is light. He's humble and gentle of heart. We are Christ-like, beloved, when we cultivate humility and gentleness in the Christian life. And that is so the opposite. Humility and gentleness is so the opposite of our culture, isn't it? So the opposite. Our culture is all about self-exaltation. Social media has made it even more easy to exalt myself. Look at me. Look at me. Look at how good-looking I am. Look at the great clothes that I have. Look at the great life that I have. Look at the contours of my face. Right? Self-exaltation is what that is. Social media makes it easy for us to be about that, beloved. What about politics? I can assure you, I can assure you, humility and gentleness won't be something that is going to be evident in the debates that are coming up. There isn't going to be a whole lot of humility and a whole lot of gentleness from either side at all. There's going to be destruction and tearing down with words and pride. And look at how great I am as opposed to how terrible she is. And look at how great I am as opposed to how terrible he is. That's what you're going to hear in politics. Self-exaltation, humility and gentleness, beloved, is spirit-empowered. And it is gospel-driven. And the Christian is able to pursue those. Amen? We're able to pursue those. Notice, patience. Patience that manifests itself, by the way, on the verse 13, on the bearing and forgiving. Patience. It means long-suffering. Long-suffering. I love that translation. Long-suffering is the spirit-empowered, gospel-driven ability to suffer long in both difficult circumstances and with difficult people. And I think the emphasis here is on, on relationships, on suffering long with difficult people, difficult relationships. Long-suffering in the face of injustice and personal injury by others. What does the world say? Get even. Seek vindication. Or avoid them altogether. Protect yourself. But God's Word says, Believer, suffer long with one another. Suffer long with one another. I remember one godly mentor telling me, Kempis, 
It is never ultimately personal against you. The harm that others bring that you take personal is never ultimately personal against you. There is a spiritual war happening, a struggle in that person's life against sin. And yes, you may hit, get hit in the process and bulldozed over, but ultimately it's spiritual warfare and they're fighting against sin. And you need to have that kind of gentle approach for them in light of that reality. We would do well to allow that kind of mindset to shape our perspective, right? That it's ultimately not personal, but it's spiritual warfare. And a person, a believer, is fighting in the power of the Spirit against sin, beloved. You husbands, we would do well as husbands to have that mindset that, that our wives are in the midst of spiritual warfare against their sin. And rather than attack them or to fight for your rights or to defend yourself... You should be praying for her and coming alongside of her and understanding, putting yourself in her place and the struggles that she's having so you can actually help her and be an instrument of change and of graciousness and gentleness in her life. Wives, you would do well to remember that your husband is in the midst of a spiritual battle. It's not ultimately personal against you. He is in the midst of, of fighting against sin and the power of the Spirit. So rather than nagging at him and telling him how he's not treating you the way that he should treat you, pray for him and come alongside of him and lovingly confront him, gently confront him, point him to the Word of God and, and surround him with other people who can actually come and help him, beloved. It's not ultimately personal against you. See, patience drives us to that, to understand that it's ultimately Ultimately, a spiritual warfare battle, isn't it? And that's going to lead to long-suffering and patience in our lives when we realize it's not ultimately an attack against us. Now look at verse 13, because he expands upon how these five graces, including long-suffering, are demonstrated then in our relationships, including long-suffering. He says, bearing with one another, bearing with one another. When we suffer long, then we will endure and bear with others who have injured us instead of utterly shunning them or going on the attack or just sticking ourselves in our closet and just avoiding them altogether. See, bearing with one another implies a commitment to stay with people, to be devoted to coming alongside of people in love, does it not? To bear with one another doesn't simply mean tolerating people or just putting up with them in the sense that they are, they are a necessary burden that you are forced to put up with. No, not at all. I remember a heated counseling session between my wife and a husband a few years ago. And toward the end of our counseling session, the wife just kind of throws her arms up in the air and says, I, I guess I just have to put up with him then. I said, hey, listen. That is not, that was not the point of our counseling session. That you would walk away and just say, I just had to put up with him. No, you need to lovingly suffer long and forbear as God did so with you. Far different than simply tolerating him, putting up with him. That's a cop out, isn't it? It's a cop out, beloved ladies. It's a cop out, brothers. God has put up with us, has he not? We need to be willing to suffer along with others. So bearing with one another is not reluctant. 
It's not forced. It's not coerced. It refers to a genuine, heartfelt commitment to endure difficult people. Listen to me. Because you also understand that you are also a difficult sinner yourself. Notice secondly in verse 13, forgiving each other. Forgiving each other. These graces manifest themselves in in loving forgiveness toward one another. The word for forgiveness here is not the, the typical word used. It's a word that highlights the richer content of forgiveness. The gracious nature of the pardon, if you will. The word is charizomai, from which we get our word grace. You can translate this continuously gracing one another, if you will. Continually gracing one another. It emphasizes the gracious nature of forgiveness. That it's freely offered, though often not deserving. But neither you and I were deserving of forgiveness from God, right? We were not deserving. So the word means to give freely or graciously in imitation of our Heavenly Father as a, as a favor and then by extension to forgive or pardon. That's what it means. What is forgiveness? What is forgiveness? Forgiveness is a gospel-driven, spirit-empowered grace. That's what it is. And it requires that you and I do at least four things, maybe five, toward the person that you've offended. You ready? One, that you humbly acknowledge your sin to the offended person. That you humbly acknowledge your sin to the offended person. Brother, sister, I have sinned against you. Honey, I've sinned against you. Son, daughter, I've sinned against you. Mom, dad, I've sinned against you. Not, I've made a mistake. Or, hey, I've been weak. Or, hey, everybody has sinned. We all sin. And you justify yourself. No, acknowledge humbly your sin. Secondly, humbly name your sin to the offended person. Name the sin. Don't leave it up for them to wonder. Or whether you really have come to grips with your sin. I have sinned against you by my anger, my harshness, my bitter, resentful thought life toward you. I've been bitter toward you. I've been unforgiving toward you. I've slandered you. I've gossiped against you. I've tore you down with others. Name the sin. Name the sin. Thirdly, humbly own the damage that you've caused. Own the damage that you've caused. Listen, brother, I know... That my sin has hurt you and has brought hurtful consequences to you. I never meant to hurt you, but I have done so. I have hurt you. Tell them that. Tell them that. The brokenness that comes where you realize that, that, that you're owning the consequences and the hurtfulness in that relationship. Fourth, humbly ask for forgiveness. Humbly ask for forgiveness for the specific sin from that person. Please forgive me for sinning against you. Please forgive me. Can I throw in a fifth? Humbly, humbly request that they would pray for you. Pray for me, brother or sister. Pray for me. Thank you for forgiving me. Pray for me that, that, that God will grant me the resolve to grow in that particular area. Please pray for me. And you know what happens many times in those kinds of situations? The other person's like, wow, wow, brother or sister, thank you for sharing that. I'm going to be praying for you. And you know what? Let me, let me tell you about my dirty laundry now. You could be praying for me in these areas as well. And all of a sudden you have a relationship with one another by which you are both soldiers, spiritually speaking, in the Christian life pursuing Christ-likeness. So ask them to help you resolve to grow in that area. How do you know when genuine forgiveness has transpired? How do you know? I think there are at least three commitments in three different categories that we must see. 
in our thinking, in our speech, and in our relationship. In our thinking, if genuine forgiveness has transpired, in our thinking, in our thought life, we commit to not dwell and continually mull over the issue that has been resolved with that person in our thought life. I love Philippians chapter 1, where Paul is writing again, expressing his love to the Philippian believers. And there are two ladies that are duking it out that he mentions in chapter 4 of Philippians, who forever will be on the pages of Scripture. I want to ask them how they felt about that when I get to heaven. Yuri and Syntyche. But you know what Paul says in Philippians 1? Philippians, I thank my God upon all my remembrance of you. You know what that tells me? Paul had fond memories and sweet thoughts of the Philippians. He thought well of them. Secondly, we commit in our speech to not bring up the resolved issue with others, either to use it against them or to undermine that person's character. In our speech, we don't bring up the issue again. If truly there has been forgiveness, either to use it against that person or to undermine their character. Thirdly, we commit in our relationship, our ongoing interaction with that person, to not allow that resolved issue to negatively hinder our relationship into the future. I.e., there you go again, just like you did the other hundred times, right? We do that in our marriage, do we not? There you go again, woman. There you go again, man. The other 150 times, just like the last 15, 20 years. Listen, if there's been genuine forgiveness, you should not be bringing up that resolved issue anymore in that relationship. Otherwise, it's going to hinder harmony and peace in the marriage or in our relationships, right? See, this is in contrast to how we typically think about another person or how we deal with one another. Well, we forgive one another, but we don't have to be best friends. You know what? We have forgiven one another, but I just can't stand them. I mean, they really hurt me this time. The sin was really great. You don't have an idea how bad it was. We're just justifying ourselves, are we not? The biggest problem with that type of attitude is this. That that is not the way that God has dealt with us, beloved. Look at verse 13. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. That's not the way that God has treated us. The way that we treat one another. And Paul realistically recognizes, notice in verse 13, that there are going to be conflicts and complaints against one another in the body of Christ. The word complaint here refers to a a debt that needs to be remitted or, or canceled. We recognize that those are going to arise because we're all a bunch of sinners, right? Saved by grace. But we are to practice gospel-driven, spirit-empowered forgiveness, beloved. Spirit-empowered forgiveness. Otherwise, peace, harmony, and unity is impossible in the church of God. Impossible in your home. If you are not practicing biblical forgiveness. We shouldn't have the sinful attitude of, hey, someone owes me something for a wrong done, and I just can't seem to release that debt. Oh, no, not for believers. That's not an excuse. Not for us who are in Christ. And that happens way too often, beloved, amongst Christians. We hold grudges against others for wrongs suffered, and we're not willing to release someone of the debt. And I guess this would be okay if we were non-Christians. I guess this would be okay, except for one life-altering truth. That in the gospel, God in Christ Jesus has not dealt with us in the same way, beloved. 
He has not dealt with us in the same way. The gospel has solved, listen to me, the infinite debt to God that we had. Infinite debt. And He's released us of that debt because Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Right? He's paid it all. God has poured His wrath upon His own Son for your sins. He's released you of the debt. He's forgiven us of our insurmountable, infinite debt that we could not pay. Thus, the believer who has been forgiven of the greater sin should be willing to forgive the lesser one, beloved. Listen. There exists an infinite chasm between our sins and God's divine perfections, beloved. That does not exist between two sinners, right? We have no excuse to not forgive our brethren, to not forgive our spouses, to not forgive our kids, to not forgive our parents. We have no excuse unless we are unbelievers who, have, who are not gospel-driven and are not spirit-empowered. This is why Paul highlights the ground and the motivation of forgiveness. Look at verse 13 again. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. We should imitate God's forgiveness. We have no excuse in the gospel, beloved. God has obliterated the insurmountable and incomparable and unpayable debt that we owed Him by the sacrifice of His Son on the cross. Who are we to hold back forgiveness and releasing another sinner such as us from the sin that they've committed against us? Who did we think we are? Amen? Well, what if their sin was very great? Is it greater than your sin against God? What if, what if they, they have not made the initiative to ask for my forgiveness? Well, didn't God seek you out first, leading to your forgiveness? What if someone is not reciprocating the same? How many times have you not reciprocated God's love in pursuit of you? How many times? Many a time. Millions of times. We must cultivate, beloved, as believers, a heart eager to forgive and to be forgiven if given the opportunity, beloved. But it's really hard, Pastor Kempis. Yes, it is. That's why these are graces that are a fruit of the Spirit of God powerfully working in the lives of believers. And especially forgiveness is that grace that flows from our understanding of God's grace shown toward us, beloved. It is the kindness of God that leads a sinner to repentance, right? The kindness of God. This kindness He showed us even while we were dead in our trespasses, Christ died for us. Even though God knew the depth of your wicked heart, He still sent His Son into the world to die for you who have believed in Him. Who are we? Who are we not to forgive? I want to end by reading Matthew 18. You can turn there if you want, or you can just listen. Matthew 18, verse 21. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. Verse 23. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, 
one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Now, a talent was worth more than 15 years wages of a laborer. Think about that. 15 years wages he owed him. Verse 25, but since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. Even though he couldn't, right? Verse 27, and the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, which, by the way, was a day's wages. That's it. A day's wages. And he seized him, and he began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me? Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. The graces that we are called to live out, the graces, beloved, that are cultivated in our hearts should find expression in loving forbearance and loving forgiveness in our relationships with one another, right? And God has empowered believers for us to be able to do that. May we pursue a life of holiness and Christ-likeness in the way that we relate to one another. Amen? Let me pray for us. Our gracious Heavenly Father, help us to appropriate, Lord, the Christ-like character that befits our position for our good and for the good of your church. May your love shown toward us in the gospel of your Son shape all that we do in the way that we love one another and in our pursuit of Christ-likeness. In the fear of you, we ask all these things in your name. Amen.